You're listening to the Healthy Divorce Podcast. Join us as we help you navigate your divorce without going broke, relationships in ruin, or ending up in court. You'll get into financial and emotional shape, make sense of the legal process, get strong enough to negotiate for yourself, be a mindful parent, stay amicable with your spouse so you can get a fresh start. Please welcome your host for this episode, Adina Laver, founder of Courage to be Curious and formerly Divorce Essentials. So the topic that we're going to be discussing is achieving that fair settlement agreement. And I want to introduce who we have with us today. And so our first guest is Chris Pastore, and he's an attorney mediator. He is president of the Mainline Family Law Center and had been a litigator for a number of years in family law and then turned to mediation as a method that he really gravitated towards in helping people to achieve settlement agreements and have a healthy transition to another phase of life following the end of a marriage. And so he's going to be on today helping us to think about what is a healthy, what does it mean to achieve a fair settlement agreement and how does that process work in the course of mediation. And then we also have on with us Diana Schimmel, and she's the owner and founder of the law office of Diana Schimmel Esquire. It's located in Philadelphia, but she serves all the surrounding counties of Philadelphia and southern New Jersey. And before... Founding her firm, Diana was a child advocate attorney with the Defenders Association of Philadelphia, and she's very active with the Women's Resource Center of Wayne, as is Chris Pastore. She's also involved with the Field Center for Children's Policy and Practice and Research in the Philadelphia Ronald McDonald House. So welcome to both of you, Chris and Diana. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, uh, Chris, I want to just invite you, give us a, you know, another moment's introduction about you and what really interests you about this topic. What, what, what makes you feel this is such an important topic for us to be discussing today? Well, Dean, I think it's absolutely crucial um, for anybody going through a divorce, no matter what process they choose, whether it's uh, getting attorneys and going to court or pursuing some type of a collaborative settlement through either the mediation or collaborative law process. What especially intrigues me about this topic is that um, in our mediation process, it's always our goal to achieve the fairest settlement possible for our client. Now, they achieve it on their own through our help and our assistance. We don't make any decisions for them as part of the mediation process, but we help to navigate and guide them towards making the most sensible decisions for the family. And we have a method and a process by which we do that. That is our ultimate goal in mind. So mediation has a whole entirely different focus than when you get attorneys and go to court. We're looking to uh, find that middle ground that they can both live with and realizing that there's no ideal for settlement, no matter whether you mediate or go to court finding that middle ground. So that's what we try to do in mediation. And Diana, tell me a little bit about, you know, what you've been thinking about this topic, a little more introduction to who you are and what makes this topic so important for you. Sure. Um, A lot of clients come to me in my practice with some stereotypical ideas of what it means to go through the divorce process. And a lot of people are nervous that it's going to be what they've seen on TV or these, you know, horror stories that they've heard in terms of friends who have been through it before. 
And what's important to me is to make sure that my clients feel comfortable going through the process and that it becomes one unique for them and their family. My motto as I practice law is to be reasonable until you can't be reasonable anymore. And I always try to achieve something fair that gives my clients a control in settling their divorce. And that's what really, um, you know, drives my practice. So whether that means we negotiate out of court um, between attorneys parties with the help of a mediator or we end up having to actually litigate, um, I want my clients to know that this is not necessarily going to be as difficult as it Thanks, Diana. So, Chris and Diana, both of you have this goal, whether it be through mediation or through working with an attorney, going litigation or settling out of court using attorneys, of helping people to really achieve that agreement and to be reasonable. And this this is called achieving a fair settlement agreement because in divorce, that's how we refer to it, as a fair settlement agreement. And one of the things that, you know, the three of us have talked about before and that really occurs to me, and we asked our callers to comment on it, is what does this notion of fair mean? And the reason I bring that up is... Fair is a pretty, is a concept that we begin forming even as children. So out on the playground, what's fair, what's not fair, you know, and it travels with us all the way through life. So certainly when we get to the place of negotiating a fair settlement agreement with a partner with whom we may not have a lot of trust or where there may be issues and things like that, that certainly whatever notions of fair that we have lurking in our heads are certainly going to come into play. And so we asked our callers actually to comment on FAIR. I'm going to address some of those um, in, in just a moment. But I'm wondering, you know, when we, you think about FAIR and what FAIR means maybe in our notions of play versus our notions, the, the legal term of FAIR and a FAIR settlement agreement, what are some of the distinctions that you notice? And, Diana, let's start with you. Sure. Um, I certainly think that everyone has a different um, sense of FAIR, not only from what they've come to develop over time, but also as a result result of the trigger of their divorce. Um, I think that when my clients go to sleep, I really encourage them to think of, you know, a best-case scenario for them, a worst-case scenario for them, and perhaps a middle ground. So it sort of gives them an opportunity to frame what they think would be fair in a perfect world, what would be, you know, fair or perhaps unfair their, you know, worst-world scenario, and then what in that middle ground. Um, legally, from a, a legal standpoint, with the court, the court is bound with uh, the statute. So the court essentially looks at the different statute outlines and spits out, you know, what they think would be fair. So the court's definition of fair is often different than what people want to achieve, which is certainly why I think uh, parties that come to me want more of that control, and that's why I um, start by negotiating with me or using that tactic. Um, I think in client cases specifically, fair can just mean being financially compensated. Fair can mean that both parties walk away with, you know, what they think they both deserve. Um, fair can also mean that um, everyone is happy or one party is happier than the other. And fair can also mean in couples who are divorcing with children, um, a good outcome for their children as well. So, Chris... Can you add anything into the con- – what do you want to add into the conversation here as we're talking about these notions of fair? Well, for, first, Adina, I think it, my comments would be very similar to what Diana mentioned, and she and I have very uh, – evidently very similar um, approaches towards our practice, albeit you know, litigating and me being a mediator. Uh, but I, I do want to say that – and I always tell my clients in mediation that fair is not always what the law says is fair. 
You know, and oftentimes a fair settlement in, in a particular case is something entirely different than what the law might provide. So when my clients come to mediation, they have the unique opportunity to decide on their own what is fair, what works, what works best for them, and, that, and that's really our focus. And how do we bring them together and find those things and find that common ground? So, so I think that um, generally the way we get a fair settlement in my process is, number one, the parties, before they start, they have to be fully informed in the first instance as, as to what their general rights and entitlements are in a divorce. So once they know that, now they feel more comfortable, more confident to move forward and, and begin negotiating you know, uh, on an equal plane. Uh, and then once they start negotiating, <clears throat> they, you know, they have, they, we have to do an analysis of um, what, are, what are the financial needs of the parties moving forward. So this is the, really the main crux of what we, we get at in our mediation process. And that's how we come to derive what's fa- fair. What's fair is what, what everybody needs moving forward. How do we discuss that? How do we provide for everybody moving forward? And providing in a way that, at the end of the day, it's not ideal to either one of them, but it's something that they can both live with. And to me, that's how we, when we find that, that place in the settlement, then, then we know we have the fairest settlement possible. Thanks, Chris. So as Chris and Diana were both talking about fair, I want to bring back into this the big notion of what does fair actually mean. And so there's this legal definition of fair. What does the court look like? And unfortunately, it's not completely objective. You couldn't take the same settlement agreement to any magistrate or any court and get the exact same response. Um, and then certainly we all come with our own notions. When I even looked in the dictionary and said, what does fair mean? And sometimes it comes up with a definition of equitable. Sometimes it comes up with a definition better than what expected, um, enough. So the range of things that fair can mean certainly play in here. And Chris, I think as you and Diana were talking about how your clients come to this notion of fair, that it's really important for us to think about what that word means before we even sit at the table. And as I'm looking at some of the responses, that people typed in. Some people typed in really specific things that fair means I would get certain amounts of money or certain privileges or certain releases from things. Some people put in fair means a 50-50 split of everything. Some people said it means means that I get to keep, for example, a house or something like that. So just acknowledging that everyone is coming to the table with different notions of what fair means, and that sometimes making that explicit could be a really helpful thing up front. So as we think about that, and I just wanted to put that notion out there to us, let's talk about as you're each working with clients, what are some of the biggest challenges that couples face when they're trying to achieve that fair settlement agreement? What are some of the barriers? Chris, why don't you start? Sure. Well, I think the biggest barrier uh, is this this idea that when spouses enter into a divorce, that the primary focus a lot of times is on winning or losing at all costs. And you make that your primary goal. You know, when you do that, based on my experience, invariably you're going to be disappointed in the end because you have certain expectations of what you want in a divorce and you are determined to get it. You need to have the understanding that there is no ideal divorce settlement where neither party will get everything that they ask for. And that's true whether they go to court or whether they 
participate in mediation. It just doesn't work that way. But when you start focusing on winning and losing and, and you know, I need to go to, to court and get more than my spouse, I need to win this divorce, um, you're going to end up being disappointed, and it's going to set the wrong tone for your divorce. So, so th- this, to me, it, it, uh, stands out as the biggest barrier to, to achieving a fair settlement. Diana, what are some of the barriers that you notice? Sure. Um, for me, it's um, often terms. It's oftentimes uh, the client's emotions or feelings that they're coming into the divorce with, and specifically, I mean this idea that they want to retaliate, or they want to be spiteful, or they want to be vindictive based on the way that the marriage ended. And um, for me, when I deal with my clients, I try to be very clear about you know sorting through some of those emotions and feelings and finding the best way to deal with them and channel them into the legal process. Because if they're clouded with these feelings of anger and emotional, um, you know, hurt, which is certainly justified and understandable when going through a divorce, um, it does sometimes hinder the process. So for me, I encourage my clients to try and as much as possible put those feelings aside and really be clear-headed to think about what's best for their futures and if there are children involved, what's best for theirs as well. Another barrier that I, that I find is clients are a little bit reluctant sometimes to share everything as far as um, their financial history or their earnings or any of the documents that they, the court might require or that the other party might want to see or that you might want to see from the other party. And again, I also encourage my clients that just as you would expect transparency and an open line of communication with the other party, um, whether they're represented or not, you want to provide that to, you know, in your case as well, you want to make sure that you're not hiding anything, not trying to be, you know, shady in what you're representing so that everybody can have a clear picture of what's on the table and discuss, you know, and get through to a fair discussion of settlement in that way. I think another another barrier could potentially be emotional attachments. Um, sometimes my equitable distribution cases are, you know, they hinge on emotional items. I had a case once where the parties really were stuck on who would get the family Christmas decorations. And it wasn't about, you know, this, you know, huge piece of money or a car or a house. It was really about the emotional attachment that each party had to that item. So, that's another barrier that sometimes needs to be worked through as well. Right. And you and I want to just add one more onto the list that I think that you touched on and then talk for a moment about these. But the fear about not having enough. Uh, actually, maybe I'm going to add two. But the fear about not having enough on the other side. And it's also related. So if I'm not the primary breadwinner, that's going to be my big fear. And if I am the primary breadwinner, my fear about losing everything, you know, perhaps that I feel like I've worked for. And so I think that this brings us to a really important foundational principle when considering the fair settlement, the fair agreement, is that in a marriage, you know, there was a contract to love and cherish and honor each other, which is what we talk about at the altar, but it is a legally binding status and agreement. And when in a situation of divorce, it um, it has implications for the final agreement that you're going to have. So that settlement agreement doesn't look at did somebody cheat on somebody, was somebody unfaithful, was somebody nasty, was somebody, you know, spreading rumors, was somebody doing all of those things. So the legal aspect of divorce doesn't look and consider any of those things, but it really says no matter how it ended and even no matter how it began, you were in a legal 
um, union, and that part of that legal union means that everything that you acquired and accrued, regardless of how it happened, regardless of who earned the money, regardless of if someone took care of the house, regardless of, you know, what property values might have gone up or down, regardless of all of those things, that this is now contractual, and it's a legal and financial discussion and not the emotional one. So there's nothing in a divorce fair settlement agreement that is, as you said, going to make up for the fact that somebody didn't behave well or that somebody did something to anger somebody else or somebody was dishonest during the marriage. And it's a really difficult thing to separate that out, as you said, but important to remember that it is one of the biggest barriers. And, you know, sometimes what I do is with my clients, and I just had was on the phone with somebody today about creating an alternate persona so that you're not negotiating with your spouse, you're negotiating with somebody else because, in one way, just because um, trying to keep the emotions out of it. So Chris and Diana, let's talk for a few minutes about how does this actually work? So when a client comes to you and now presumably they have, there's an attorney on the other side of this, you know, what are the nuts and bolts of how does the process work? Like somebody's just landed in your office now, you know, t- talk us through this. How does it happen? Sure. Um, Typically, when I meet with a client initially for the consultation, I try to get as much information at that time as possible. And what I mean by information is I get a history of the marriage, the lifestyle that the parties lived, because that is one of the factors that the court will consider in equitable distribution. And as an aside, equitable distribution is what the courts call in Pennsylvania the process of dividing the marital property. So I get a picture of the family life when they were married, and then I also try to get a list of assets bank accounts, retirement accounts, the more clinical things, but then also the personal assets, uh, the home, the cars, was there, you know, a special membership that they that they had, um, you know, anything else that they feel would be of value, sentimental or monetary, that they would want to split up. Um, when there's two attorneys on either side, typically the way that I start my work is I reach out to the other attorney on behalf of my client. And I, like I said, I like to be reasonable until it's not time to be reasonable anymore. So I, I typically introduce myself. I reach out and basically say my client would like to begin working on a fair agreement. I know that they have some property and potentially, you know, some differences in how they'd like to split it up, but let's see what we can do. Um, In a situation where there's two attorneys, most attorneys know that it's easier to do things a little bit informally first, and then if they're meeting, if they're met with resistance and requests, they can go through the courts. So my colleagues and I typically do an informal letter request for documents, um, information about the assets. That sort of gives each party a clear picture of what we're working with. Again, when I go back to my client, I work with my client on a best case scenario a worst-case scenario, and then a middle ground. So we then start to engage in in a negotiation back and forth between um, the other attorney and myself. It should also be noted that if you are going through the court process, the divorce cannot be finalized until the financials or the equitable distribution portion of the case is resolved. So parties typically like to, to dive right into that negotiation because they don't want anything to hold up the finalization of the divorce. Um, I think it's also important to note some of my clients become wary when it's two attorneys. Um, they think sometimes, you know, the other attorney potentially um, could not have their best interests at heart. They could be tough to work with. Um, or on the other end of it, when I myself am friendly or know that other attorney and they, they wonder how that friendship or good working relationship is going to come about. And to give the, you know, the listeners a specific example, um, I have a divorce that's pending right now. 
The parties were married for three years. Um, both of them have sizable assets. Um, they have a home and a car. Um, there's also some sentimental attachments in this case. They have um, extensive wedding gifts and, and photos and things like that that they're both attached to. And there was a marital debt. One party lent the other party money within the marriage. Um, and the other attorney on the other side actually referred me to the other party when the divorce began. And she and I not only are friends, but also we're, we're colleagues. We work on cases frequently together. And we share ideas in the family law community together. And um, basically, my client said, you know, is this going to be a benefit or, or a hindrance? And right now, it's been a benefit. It's um, allowed me to be very reasonable, very straightforward with my with my colleague. Um, it's also allowed us to cut through some of you know the formalities of everything and really get to the root of the responses and and work together. If you're working with an attorney that you know isn't on the same page or doesn't have the same ethic as you do, um, sometimes that can be difficult. And while you may want to and your client may want to you know work through it and negotiate out of court, it might make it it might make it harder. So I always find that knowing the other attorney on the other side and knowing their work style is a benefit to my client. Diane, I just wanted to ask you one other question is, you know, I know I get this question a lot, and I think many of our listeners wonder about it too, and I don't expect there's one pat answer, but I'm interested in your opinion on if two sides retain attorneys and, you know, they do, should they talk to each other or when should they have conversations to try to work some things out on their own or when should everything go through the attorney? Um, Because sometimes people think, well, I hired an attorney, so everything should go through them. Sometimes it feels like we should have conversations on our own. Sometimes there's an intimidation factor. One person wants to have conversations. Another person's afraid. So how do you um, grapple with that, with, or how do you work with your clients around that issue when they ask you, you know, should I be talking with my partner at, or not? That's actually a really great question, and it does come up frequently. And I'll give you two examples of that um, situation. Um, in one case that I have right now, both parties are represented, and we were working on a really great settlement um, back and forth through the attorneys only. And then the other party, not the client that I represented, started texting my client and sort of derailing a little bit of the discussion. And she was intimidating my client a little bit, but also sort of changing the terms. And I finally had to tell him to tell her you know, that we are talking through the attorneys, that's the avenue that we chose, so please, you know, this is just counterproductive. And in that case, she stopped and we resumed through the attorneys and we're actually very close to a settlement. Um, in another case of mine, the one that I actually just mentioned where I'm friends with the other attorney, um, the parties wanted to go through the attorneys at first. However, because there's some emotional sensitivity there, the parties began, and this is on both sides, they began to sort of read into the clinicalness of the discussion between the attorneys and their emotions started to get the best of them. So my client actually just requested of me yesterday if she could reach out directly to um, her ex-spouse and just maybe write him a letter explaining some of her intentions about the process. She didn't want to specifically negotiate with him, which I, I typically suggest is not the best course, um, but I thought it was helpful that they speak about that. Um, sometimes... If a client sees that the negotiation is getting off course or that the other party is getting frustrated, and obviously these parties were married, they have a strong sense of knowing who the other party is, and they might know the best language with which to, to talk to that other party. So sometimes it can be helpful, but that really is case-specific, and only that only occurs when a, when a party recognizes it in the other party and they want to jump in. Um, but frequently it is best to do it through attorneys. Um, especially ethically for attorneys. We as attorneys are not able to speak directly to a represented party. So for us, it 
it is easier to speak attorney to attorney. Um, and if we do feel that it is necessary to have the client jump in, we do so. But again, that's in a more case-by-case specific basis. Great. Thanks. So I want to go back a little bit. You know, Diana took us through step-by-step. How does this Achieving a Fair Settlement Agreement happen for people as they walk into an attorney's office, what she does, and things like that? So somebody's coming to mediation, and kind of walk us through the process of how does this start and how does the process unfold for clients who are going to be working on Achieving a Fair Settlement Agreement through mediation? Sure. And the, the end result, you know, in both both uh, processes, whether you litigate or mediate, is to get a, achieve a fair settlement. And Diana talked about and took us through step-by-step step sort of how her process that she goes through and, and the timing and, and all the, everything that's involved in that. So in mediation, uh, as opposed to going to court, which is a two-year or more process typically, you know, how do you achieve a fair settlement in mediation, you know, in, in a matter of months as opposed to years? It, you know, when clients come to me, they they, they think, geez, how the heck do we do that? Well, we start much in the same way as Diana uh, mentioned. And we, in, in this case, though, because parties are coming together to mediation and they're there to collaborate on a settlement together, that they must attend an initial consult together. So we, so there's no, the mediator, because they're neutral, and they're a neutral third party in this process, ha- they have to be speaking to both spouses at all times. So the initial consult, you know, very similar to what Diana talked about, but in, the, in, in our context, spouses are coming together. They're presenting me with some initial information, background information on their marital assets, their debts, uh, the children's issues. We ask them pertinent questions to get a feel. Number one, what are some of the, the issues involved? And number two, and you know, more importantly at the time, are they going to be appropriate candidates for mediation? So this is what we're always screening up front. So what makes them appropriate candidates to begin with, uh, and which, which is what we assess up front, and, and that is, are they coming to mediation, you know, in the right frame of mind? You know, are they, are they interested in coming together and doing what's right and what's best by their family rather than this focus on winning and losing and being vindictive and angry and towards your spouse? Um, do they have the best goals and intentions of, of everybody in the family in mind, you know, and as well as their children, if children are involved. So, um, so I'm assessing that up front. And if the candidates, if the spouse, spouses I, I, we are deemed to be good or appropriate candidates for the process, we then move forward. And the, the first thing we have them do is actually uh, we conduct a financial disclosure of our own, similar to the discovery process, uh, that Diana may have alluded to. Um, ours takes probably a couple weeks to go through where we ask them to provide us with financial documents, and they do so before we even meet so that I can see everything that's there, that they've disclosed all the, the current values of all assets and debts. Um, and so we have that information up front. Uh, there cannot be any trust issues in mediation uh, to the effect that if once this information is brought, that one spouse does not have any doubt in their mind that, you know, this is not everything that they, that they both have, that, that, you know, that no, nobody's hiding anything as part of this process. So that, so there has to be a basic level of trust, you know, initially between the spouses before they start. So we gather up the financial documents. If there's children involved, they will typically go to a parenting session with, a, with our parenting mediator. 
at the outset of the process, we take care of the children's issues first. We address those first. We get the, together some type of a parenting or custody agreement that they can bring forward with them. Uh, they would then typically meet with me for one or two financial sessions. We talk about all those issues that are important to them financially. We, we do a full financial analysis. Uh, and I hear from them. They sit down, and I, and I want to hear what's important from them. What, what are the things that are most important to them? Is it the house? You know, is, it, uh, is it the credit card debt? You know, is it alimony? Is it child support? Um, and, and try to identify where some of, the, some of the common ground is, but also where some of the sticking points are. Um, we're going to emphasize the positive you know, in all this and identify where the sticking points are and really drill down and work on those to try to find that common ground uh, there because there always is, com- there is common ground to be found in mediation and we, and we almost always find it. It takes a little time sometimes, but, um, but, but mediation always says what the parties make of it. So when they come to mediation, they have to be willing and ready to compromise and be committed to finding that middle ground wherever that is. Okay, and they're not always going to agree, but the clients themselves, if they're appropriate for this process, really make this process. So we take them through all those steps. Uh, we, we sit with them. We navigate them through all the issues to be discussed. And in the end, it's going to compel them, if they've approached it in the right way, in the right frame of mind, and with the right attitude, it's going to compel them to reach the fairest settlement possible. Not ideal to either one of them, but a settlement that they can both live with moving forward, and that's also adequate and appropriate uh, and sufficient for their children as well. So, Chris, I have a couple questions for you. And, you know, one of them is, because this came through a lot on people's responses to what is a fair Mm -hmm. settlement agreement, and many people thinking that we're going to split things 50-50. So tell us about that. And, you know, Diana mentioned that Pennsylvania is an equitable distribution state. And, you know, a little bit more explanation as to what equitable distribution means and how that relates to the notion of a 50-50 split. Sure. Um, equitable distribution, as, as Diana uh, pointed out uh, briefly, is not always a, a 50-50 split at the end of the day. Now, it can be in, in many cases, um, and many of our clients, in fact, come to mediation and they assume, well, we're mediating, so we're, we're necessarily going to split everything down the middle, and that's certainly not always the case. Equitable distribution in Pennsylvania means that the court ultimately retains discretion over how to divide the estate. Okay, whether it's 50-50, 60-40, or somewhere in between, or some other uh, scheme of division. Um, so I, I educate my clients when they come to our process, you know, of what the equitable, the equitable distribution statute provides. There are 13 different factors in the statute that a court can look at to decide uh, what the ultimate split of the estate will be. Now, how do we resolve that in mediation when there is no judge deciding and the parties are charged with having to make that decision on their own. So through our help and our guidance and our education on what the basic law provides, they are going to make that choice themselves. So like anything else in this process, it's about educating them up front. And then once they're educated on how it works, equitable distribution in Pennsylvania, they'll become readily apparent to them how it is to apply to their particular situation. 
I just want to jump in. Is equitable distribution forward-looking or backward-looking? So because it may not be a 50-50 split, does equitable distribution allow this discretion because the court wants to look forward and say, what will you need in the future? Or does it is it there to provide for things that have happened in the past and say, well, because of this, this, and this, we're going to divide that, that happened in the past, we're going to divide things this way? What, which way does equitable distribution look? Can I jump in and possibly take that? Sure. Yes, go ahead. Um, just to be clear, the court, when they're dividing through equitable distribution, they're only looking at what's called marital assets, which is typically, with some exception, the property that the parties acquired during, from the date of marriage to the date of separation. And if you go in and look at the statute, which is actually um, PA uh, Section 23-3502, some of the factors are from the past. They look at the length of marriage, um, any, you know, contributions during the marriage to either education or a business of that party. Um, but also some of them are future looking or forward looking in the sense that they look at the current status of the parties now and what their potentials for earnings in the future would be or who may be, you know, the custodian of any minor children, um, any potential for sale of some of the assets and property. So it does look at both and the statute does have enough um, in each of the different factors to sort of cover looking at what happened during the marriage and also to take a forward approach. So the answer is really both. Right. And, and, but the bottom line essence of the statute is that, you know, what, are the, what, what is the court driving at in those 13 factors? They're ultimately looking to make sure that both parties are well provided for financially moving forward. Okay. And, in answering that question, sometimes they, they need to, to ask questions about the history of the marriage and what occurred during the marriage. Uh, those are some of the factors that Diana were those, those, those uh, not forward, but backward looking uh, factors uh, that the courts, that, that's, that's part of the statute. So, yes, it's a perspective uh, analysis, but you also need to know how they got there upon the divorce and the, and the history, the earnings histories, as Diana said. What did a spouse, was a spouse a homemaker all those years? How did they contribute to the earning power of the other, you know, and so forth, uh, in order to draw that conclusion as to what is the fair settlement that provides for both of them adequately financially moving forward? So I want to ask what, you know, one more question here to, um, you know, interested in both of your responses is that, this process of achieving a fair settlement agreement, you know, I was thinking, Chris, as you're talking about mediation, I get calls from lots of clients who are afraid of either on one side be, not being able to self-advocate. You know, I've been intimidated or I'm not in the power position because I wasn't the primary earner. So even though I think mediation would be good for us, um, I don't know that I can do that because I can't advocate for myself. And then on the other side of it, somebody who's been the primary person and is afraid of, you know, the, the statement losing it all is afraid that if there isn't representation that, you know, what if I, what if I lose too much in this process because there, you know, there isn't a court involved in some way. Um, and I'm sure, Diana, people come to you with the exact same concern. And so what I wanted to think about in this question was, where else do people get support? So they have their attorney or they have their mediator, but there's a lot of other professionals that are involved in the divorce process or can be that can help people, in your case, Chris, of either being able to continue to mediate, even if they're not feeling 100% sure, or in your case, Diana, mediate successfully without having to go to court, I mean, uh, to settle 
successfully without having to go to court. So there are some other players here who sometimes can be helpful. Who are some of these other players, and how can they how can they be part of the picture? So first, Chris, why don't you start? Okay. Uh, first of all, and of course, this idea that you discuss, Adina, is very central to our program and, and the holistic approach that we take in our mediation program. And now we employ a number of different professionals many of them on an, on an elective basis, as the clients would need moving forward. So, we, so we're talking about emotional support uh, from therapists and coaches like yourself, Adina, divorce and relationship coaches, to help one or both parties move forward if they're feeling stuck, let's say, emotionally, and it's, it's hindering their ability to come to the table in the, the healthiest frame of mind. So, so certainly that emotional help is available, um, financial help, as well, um, CDFA, Certified Divorce Financial Analyst, uh, that if, especially in a case where you have a high net worth divorce, working with a Certified Divorce Financial Analyst to help you take a look at the, the, the larger picture of and, and the forward value of the assets that you're taking with you. So it's not just what they're worth today, but, you know, what is, it, what is a, a more forward view of the value of those assets 5, 10, 15 years down the line into retirement, let's say? So, and that can a lot of times when, when they do an analysis with a professional of that nature, spouses can feel much better about the assets that they're taking with them and they can let go of others that maybe are not, they know are not as valuable as part of the divorce settlement. So, um, Diana, do you have any other uh, professionals that I haven't mentioned? Um, the only other thing that I would suggest is um, some of my clients find solace in divorce support groups, um, specifically some of my male clients. Um, I, I find that a lot of my clients think that there's sometimes a gender disparity, um, and it helps to sit around and, and talk with some other gentlemen who are going through the same process, but that certainly um, helps. Um, but as far as what you've mentioned, I always recommend to my clients that they try to use a team because when they come to me, I mean, certainly as their lawyer, I can shoulder some of, you know, maybe the emotional burden or give them the best advice as I can. But also, I'm not an expert in everything. So I agree with you. I, I send them to therapists, to co-parenting specialists, to mediators, to divorce coaches, um, and, and to support groups. Absolutely. Right. And I just want to touch quickly. Um, I want to say that... Um, a lot of times uh, my clients will come to me, uh, and even when I was in, in private practice, and assume that because I'm a lawyer that I have all the answers, you know. And that's not the case. And I have to tell them that, well, geez, you know, I have experience litigating divorces and handling divorces, but I'm not a tax specialist. I'm not a CPA. I'm not a financial analyst. Um, and I have to tell them because there is this, this assumption up front that the attorney knows everything, and that, that is not the case. So... So we, too, rely very heavily on these, these, these experts who provide this outside help and support so that we can achieve the fairest settlement that we, can, we possibly can. I absolutely agree with that. And sometimes I find myself in a position where a lot of clients confide in me the way that they would with a therapist. And sometimes it does, you know, cross that line where I am just not qualified to help them deal with some of those emotional issues. And that's when I do encourage them to move forward to finding somebody who's a better suited professional for that. Because once the legal process, you know, it ebbs and flows. And sometimes there's quieter periods when the legal side of things is not necessarily moving along as rapidly. But you might need that shoulder or that other person to to speak to. And it might not necessarily be your lawyer when the legal process has slowed. And it might be turning to a therapist or a coach. 
And I just want to add to that piece that there's can often be a concern I'm at, you know, know when people are going through this concern about money. And so this idea of a team of investing too much money, but I know Chris, you've seen this for sure. Diane, I know you've seen this where cases can drag on for a long time leading to very high fees because of getting stuck, stuck either on the emotional issue or stuck because there's a lack of understanding financially. And if there's a lack of understanding about what's going on financially and what things will mean for the future, it generates fear. And fear means I don't want to make decisions or I don't want to settle because I'm too afraid. And that fear can end up or that emotional um, sticking point can end up costing enormous amounts of money and elongating the process, whereas getting the support in those few areas can really help to expedite things, ultimately saving money, saving emotional resources and things like that. So I'm glad we had that little bit of discussion about really having the team. So we're coming close to the end of the call. So you literally, Chris, is 60 seconds, and Diana, 60 seconds. Any sort of final words or final resources that you would like to share with people as we're bringing this conversation to a close? So Diana, any closing thoughts or resources to share? Sure. I guess the only thing that I would um, sort of advise is to really think about what you want from your divorce settlement as you approach that um, that juncture. And to remember that it's about you and your family. And there's going to be a lot of people offering you advice, um, solicited or unsolicited, but really think about what's best for you and your family in the future and find, you know, a, a group of, of professionals that you can trust. Um, that will help you. Um, I think sometimes getting overwhelmed means when you've done too much or you've listened to too many, you know, friends and family. But um, once you pick a secure team and, you know, you um, know who you'd like to work with uh, and trust that approach, then um, I think you should really stick with that. And um, just always keep in mind that there is light at the end of the tunnel, that the process will end eventually and that you are doing the right thing by continuing to move through. Okay, Chris, your final words. Yes, uh, and I would just add to that as a couple of tips. And these are the biggest ones that I can put forth because I I see cases making or breaking themselves, whether they can mediate or go to court on these these couple of concepts. Number one, you always want to come from a position of good and fair intention with your spouse. So when you start this process, whether you are mediating or you're going to court, you want to set the tone early on by letting your spouse know that, you know, you do intend to be fair and that you're not out to hurt or harm your spouse financially or emotionally. And you'll find, believe it or not, probably eight times out of ten, your spouse is going to respond favorably and kind. You may not believe that, but, but I've seen this happen time and time again. So setting the tone early on. So resist the temptation to clear out the joint bank accounts and redirecting funds without telling your spouse. Resist the temptation to hide assets. And most importantly, do not threaten your spouse with anything just because a friend, a family member, or maybe a a legal professional told you that you were entitled to to something in a divorce. And now you go home and you guess what? I'm entitled to this, this, and that, and I'm going to now threaten you with that. So setting that tone early on because this will make or break how how your divorce ends up, and it can end up costing you dearly for years to come if you don't do it in the right way. Right, and one of the resources I think we want to let everyone know about is a program, and this is a program that I put together with Chris with a number of other professionals called the Divorce Companion that really helps 
helps people navigating this process to set the priorities, to get in the right frame of mind, to anticipate what's coming, to be able to get basic knowledge in the financial realm, in the legal realm, and to kind of navigate through side by side. And so we encourage people to look at that at divorcecompanion.com as a support for all the things that Chris and Diana just talked about and how to set things up in the right footing. Well, Chris and Diana, thank you so much for being on the call today. I actually think this was a really great amount of information to share, but also depth into what this process looks like, how it works, and how people can set themselves up for success. And certainly even tackling that notion of what does fair mean to me up front would be a really great conversation to have with self and then with the partner too. hope you enjoyed this episode of the Healthy Divorce Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. You can find me, Sharon Pastore, or my partner, Chris Pastore, at MyHealthyDivorce.com. If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, you can have a healthy divorce. It's how you divorce that matters.